0: The Incomparable, number 344, March 2017.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and we're here. It's an edition of our book club, uh, and Scott McNulty is not here.
2: <gasps> what?
3: Ooh. You know it
1: happens? He's not on every book club. He, he doesn't read all the books. He only reads some
2: of the books. He doesn't remember all of the
1: books. And he certainly doesn't remember. I didn't remember. I got I to gotta make a confession. I didn't remember anything about these books, but I did a reread and so we're here to talk about uh, a book from 2001 and another one from 2005 by both by Neil Gaiman first American Gods, and then we'll also talk a little bit about A Nancy Boys, which is not really a sequel, but has a lot of connections to American Gods. Doing this now, even though I read this book, whatever, fifteen years ago, is because there will be a TV series of American Gods coming on the Stars Network in the U.S. and Netflix everywhere else in the world in uh, the next uh, month or t- month or so. So, joining me to talk about these two books by famous comic book writer neil gaiman how will he succeed as a novelist hmm Are the he succeeds i forget that he's a comic book writer now that's how well he succeeded (laughs) are the following fine people david j lore is here hello
2: hello there
1: uh monty ashley watch my coin trick (laughs) now if i stop believing in you do you go away uh, at the end of the podcast, that's, if, oh. if you don't believe in me anymore, I go away. It's true. Oh, okay. I uh, a lot of pressure on you. Never forget. Never
0: forget. Glenn Fleischman's also here. Hello. Hey, you always knew I was more of an idea than a person, Jason. You knew it.
1: Yeah, you're one of the new gods, the god of Glenning, and it's just the all about, as long as we believe <laughs> that there are <laughs> unlikely co- connections between people, Glenn will remain
2: in existence.
0: I was reading one of these books uh, between the two days I played Jeopardy, in fact, so... There you go. Glenning. The
2: The thing that's amazing yes. is you actually know your dentist's relative's god. That's true.
1: That's strange. And Aline Sims is also here. Hello.
3: Hello. Um. So who's starting the war?
1: Glenn. It's Glenn. It's always, always Glenn. me. It's, yeah, we didn't even need to ask, really. We knew it. I'm a trickster god. Yeah, it's true. It's low-key Fleischman. <laughs> 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 so I, you know, I've been watching the um. The run-up to the release of the American God TV series, and I've been like, okay, that's cool. I remember I read that book. I remember I liked that book. Then I went to the Wikipedia page for American Gods, and I looked at the plot <laughs> summary, and I thought, I don't I, – well, no, that's not true. I literally remember nothing about a Nancy Boys at all, um, and I remember really liking it. American Gods, I remember – some of it, but then as I reread it, because I did reread it, I was amazed at how much I just didn't remember. I guess it's I I feel like I'm becoming Scott McNulty now. I, I had I just so little I mean I remember Shadow and I remember his relationship with his with his wife and I remember going to the small town and I remember the house on the rock um I remember little bits of it but um it was really great to revisit it actually I enjoyed it a lot but it, it I had no I had no um good memory of this I assume everybody here read it a while ago I read
4: the original release when it came out and then I read it again when the super expensive Hill House slip-cased author's preferred edition came out. Ooh. So I thought that was going to be the only way I could read the other 10,000 words. And they would explain things that Neil Gaiman had purposely left out of the book. And A, they did not explain that. And B, the, that content came out in paperback formally.
0: I read Nancy Boys first because I heard him interviewed on NPR about it. And it was kind of stressed, you know, this isn't exactly a sequel. So I read... Uh, That out of interest Uh, and then um, I think a couple years later picked up in Red American Gods, as I say, finishing it between two episodes of Jeopardy! taping and uh – it was, um, and, you know, it seemed like a very different book. And then I, Jason, I had the same experience. I remembered maybe a little differently. I remembered the plot, uh, much more closely, but the detail, I forgot entire, like, subplots and side trips because it's, um, yeah, uh, American Gods in particular is the definition of a picaresque novel. <laughs> uh, they go from place to place to place to place to place as Gaiman did. But then, um, you know, it does have an overarching theme and it comes back, but it is, you can forget some of the picaresque locations that are stopped Oh, yes.
2: no. I I read it when it came out and uh, got through the whole thing and thought, wow, that could have been shorter. And then um, (laughs) – I I mean, I really like it. Don't get me wrong. I I love him as a novelist. But uh, then when he first announced, oh, I'm writing a book that is loosely connected to American Gods, and I thought, well, I'm not going to read that because – I already read a lot of American Gods. And, but then he kept calling it his Thorn Smith novel, and I love Thorn Smith. And I thought, okay, well, if he's if he's really doing something in that spirit, it's going to be shorter, because you can't sustain that for 500 pages, and and it'll be light. It'll be fun. And so I got a Nancy Boys as soon as it came out, and I think I enjoyed it more, although I think American Gods is probably the best better, richer, deeper, more respectable book, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. That's does. that's the one that you would put up there on your your shelf of great novels uh, that you might not ever read again. But I enjoyed Anansi Boys a lot more. Helene, what about you?
3: Picture it. San Francisco, <laughs> 2009. It um, was the first time I actually read American Gods. And I can remember it because it was actually um, – I'm I'm a person who suffers from chronic illness and I was going through kind of a, a, a down cycle and working with doctors to figure it out and American Gods was literally the first book I'd have been able to read in something like three or four years so I have a very clear picture of reading it in the W Hotel looking over the Bay Bridge like I remember wow. reading mm. American Gods very clearly um, because I've always been a voracious reader and then I couldn't for so long so for that reason I'm really biased toward American mm-hmm. Gods because it was reconnecting me with with novels and reading and something that um that I really, really loved. And I really enjoyed the book. And it was the 10th tenth 10th anniversary edition. No, so this must have been 2011, actually, not 2009. I'll picture
2: it differently, slightly differently. The fog is
1: a different texture. <laughs> oh, hang now. on,
2: hang on. Got to recap. The, the calendar on the wall is slightly off.
3: A Place in My Heart Forever. I still love it. I still love it. Um, I was reading Anansi Boys for this and I have the, the edition from Barnes and Noble that's, um, like I think the original edit of American Gods and Anansi Boys. And I picked it up, um, and I started reading it in preparation for this because I was like, oh, I never got around to reading that. And. I was reading and I was like, this is a lot like Neverwhere. This is all sounding really familiar. Mm, like there are things mm-hmm, with bathroom yeah. scenes and that kind of thing. And I'm like, this is, this is just Neverwhere. And then I got f- like, I don't know, a half, halfway through or so. And I realized that I had read this book and oh. uh, because uh, of a specific scene, but full I completely, it was a full <laughs> McNulty. I don't have any memory of re- of reading this book at all i have no idea when it wow. happened um i enjoyed it but i have no no idea when i read it for the first time i mean like
2: he's exactly right when he called it a thornsmith novel because it is it is light inconsequential farce that as soon as you're done it's gone and you can enjoy it again but yeah. In reading the synopsis, I was like,
1: oh, yeah, I do remember that. That was a really wacky, funny book about these two mismatched brothers who have the heirs to yeah. the Anansi the Spider <laughs> fortune. <laughs> Their brother is not quite identical, brothers. I don't quite agree that it's all that fun.
4: No? I don't like anyone in Anansi Boys. Well, I, really? I'll take your word for yeah, that, because that.
1: all I remember yeah. is that it was a zany a, a zany book, but I, I didn't reread it, and all I've got is a Wikipedia summary to go on.
4: The, the main character is Fat Charlie. He is a mope and a half for two-thirds of the book, <laughs> so I don't like him. And everyone else in the book is a huge jerk to Fat Charlie all of the time. The characters are supposed to hate and the characters we're supposed to like all just make this guy's life awful.
1: A hundred percent of their screen time. I remember finding it amusing and not what I expected after having read American <laughs> Gods. When you hear that he's based he's taking
4: a really fun side character from one book, and he's in the title of the next book. I personally expected more a Nancy, yeah, in the more Mister Nancy. <laughs> <than that>. Yes, <laughs> barely in it. Yes, yeah.
1: That's that's this is true. You know, one of my favorite things. So when I was in like second grade, we listen, we we like learned about folk. Characters from around the world, and I remember loving Anansi the Spider. Uh, oh, so yeah. I've have, I've have, I've have enjoyed Anansi the Spider as a as a concept as a folktale uh, for most of my life. And so when I read American Gods, I was like, oh, I got it! Look, I know who that is. Right? It was so it was so great. And I've been mean, coming back to what uh, David said about it being, it being so long. One of the things I really liked about American Gods, and that in reading it again, uh, it is long. I actually thinking about the TV show. I was thinking, well... This is great source material for the TV show. Because American Gods feels like a book where Neil Gaiman, who is English and moved to the Midwest, he moved to he he lived in Minnesota for many years when he wrote this book, he lived in Minnesota and he was traveling around the United States. And I feel like this is the book where Neil Gaiman was like, "All right, I'm going to empty my notebook of all yeah. the observations <laughs> I've made about America yep. as a person who is English and has come to America and lived there." And so it is huge. And it is digressive, and it has details that are kind of bizarrely specific. And and if you were – if he was a nobody writer and you were a book editor and you were like, I'm really concerned about how long this book is, you could cut 200 pages out of it pretty from the original pretty easily, and no one would notice. But that said, <laughs> I, I thinking about it in the context of the TV series, uh, one um, – Makes great material, background material for building a world for a uh, TV series. So it's actually kind of nice that they've got all that material because, that he threw in there, and uh, and two, he's such a good writer, and I I forget. You know, yeah. I, I know about it in in concept, and then I read his prose again, and, and I just think, "Oh my god, this guy is so good!" That I'm I'm okay with how how digressive it is and how many bizarre tangents he takes because it's also good that I'm like, "All right, sure, let's do that for a while." What the heck? Tell me about that
0: ancient god. <laughs> sure, uh, he's got a knack of building a character or a world in like a paragraph or two. Uh, like uh, when we meet uh, Anubis and. Uh, and uh jackal in the book. It's just, I mean, I think in like three paragraphs, you know where they are? You kind of know the relationship to one another and you're settled in Cairo, in, Illinois, right? Cairo. Yeah. Which is in, a lovely uh, touch. Yeah. It's, um, it's perfect. Uh, the symbol is the thing as, uh, as Mr. Wednesday says.
1: Yeah. Oh, so we should say, I mean, if you haven't read this book, why are you listening to this? But if you haven't read this book, the the premise of it is, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's some twists and turns. I feel like it's much more about the journey than it is the destination and the fact that the climax happens and then there's another like 100 pages after that. (laughs) Um, They don't get to the war, they keep promising. That's a problem. (laughs) That's true, right? So I think the premise of it is this. The premise is that people's belief in gods or fairy tales or folk tales or whatever creates representations of those things in the real world. And that in this case, America, and this is something I really liked a lot, the idea that North America is a, a land that is resistance to, resistant to giving them the level of powers that they might have had in the old world. But they, they are still around. So if you're an immigrant and everybody who lives in, in America is an immigrant, um, and we even have a segment where the initial people who came across the land bridge bring their gods with them too, everybody brings their gods with them and then those gods, kind of not particularly powerful, are kind of kicking around in America I'm until until they are not believed in anymore. And that is, that is the premise of this. So our character Shadow, uh, who we meet early on, he's the protagonist of this book. He ends up going to work for a man named Mr. Wednesday, who uh, you may discover immediately, or it may take you 50 pages to figure it out, is Odin from Norse mythology. By the way, that's Neil Gaiman's most recent book is a just a whole book of stories from Norse mythology. And we meet many other characters, including Anansi the Spider along the way, as well as modern gods. For the And the concept there is now people worship other things like technology and me- mass media. And that's bad. They're in opposition to uh, Mr. Wednesday. <laughs> I, I think guess. the way they are described clearly takes a
4: position that television is bad and technology is bad and the new things are bad and the well, old things are good.
1: Is that the author or is that just the the viewpoint of of uh of Mr. Wednesday who's placed himself in opposition to them? I believe it is the
0: author.
3: I, the latter.
0: It's also it's 2001 the internet was terrible in 2001 Monty <laughs> so is media. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, it's right was, right you, now. Elaine, You better. gave a skeptical well there.
3: I think it's all from Wednesday's perspective, right? He uh, we're past the spoilery part, right?
1: <laughs> sure. I mean, again, I will just make it clear. Oh. If you care about what happens in this book, don't do that.
3: So yeah. So very early on, he recruits Shadow to work for him. And Shadow is kind of on the side of the old gods, um, just because that's what he's been exposed to. And so I do think that it's from that perspective and not so much the author's perspective. I mean, it, Maybe it's both, but I'd never read it as a, like, Neil Gaiman preaching at people to to not watch TV and stay off the freeways. I read it as um, the clash of the old and the new, and how does that get resolved, and how do they view one another?
4: Well, we see lots of old gods, and they're mostly, I'm going to say, quaint which I'm going to come back to later, they're charming. (laughs) They're jackal and ibis. Even if they're crooks like Wednesday or Mad Sweeney, they're fun. But then we see the new gods, and they're described as fat, as smelly, and they're the ones who are torturing our protagonists. Just the way the old gods are described compared to the way the new gods are described, I think Gaiman very much takes a position here.
0: Yeah, although it it gets at, by the end, we realize the new gods are dupes, also, and that there is kind of this, you know, that I mean, that's we don't really get the war because uh, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, we don't get the war because it turns out there is the no battle, you know, one group, uh the intangibles have, you know, they, it's kind of like Gaiman gives us the truth early on. The intangibles say, well, we just think the market will work out this eventually we don't really need to have a war which is kind of what the book says ultimately is that the war is a concocted thing um and these new gods will come and go themselves they have no you know protection either they'll be abandoned well yeah
4: but just because one group of gods isn't winning the war doesn't mean that one group of gods isn't Described as being much worse than the other oh, group
0: yeah and i I agree I think it's a pretty harsh depiction i mean it, it's coarse like media offering to show lucille bald's balls uh you know naked to chest um, is uh, i think one of the most Ter- like not terrifying it's a, it's an ugly thing in the book intentionally and it's and it's brought back up later it's such an ugly idea right and so that's and then later you know media is packaged as somebody who looks really slick and whatever and he's like shadow says you know i i liked it better when you were just upfront about you know being as coarse as you really are that's not a positive image i will agree
3: i i still disagree i do understand uh what you're saying but um i didn't i didn't get that at any event I all think
1: right. I think we will uh, find out more about how na- Neil Gaiman feels about these new gods because the apparently his maybe next novel is a sequel to American Gods, and oh, really? the rumor is that it's about the new gods. And I not wonder so much about why the new he gods. would do that. I wonder mm. maybe there's some timing involved there. I just could don't. be.
0: Could <laughs> now be. it's all um, about
1: how great television is. And everybody
4: should exactly. watch it all the time, <laughs> especially a show called
0: American it, Gods. It retcons the entire book. Oh my god. Also just as as
1: as Shadow is learning how to do magic tricks you know, this storytelling, and and this is a part of what this book is about, is about, you know, stories and legends and things like that. Storytelling can be a magic trick. Um, we are watching, as it as it turns out, um, a con being perpetrated by Odin and Loki. We are also watching a con being perpetrated by Neil Gaiman, where he needs to get us to really believe that a war between the gods is coming, between old and new. And so, he's going to ramp up, like, the differences between the old and the new gods, because he doesn't want you to pay too much attention to that whole thing where Odin talks about various cons that are famous <laughs> that goes on for many pages. But <laughs> many, many pages. Many pages and is <laughs> well, paid off yeah. later. And so I, I feel like he's, you know, he wants to... He's doing a lot of misdirection too. He's doing a lot of look over there when the when the coin's over here himself in order to sell you into this uh, this premise that turns out to not at all be true. So I, I think that that is a part of it where he's he he wants you to feel like you know yeah I'm for Shadow and those new gods are bad and um, but it's actually just part of the magic trick. This edition of The Incomparable is sponsored in part by John Birmingham's book, A Girl in Time. On the eve of a huge breakout success, a poor but brilliant young game developer is pulled out of her world and time itself by a cowboy desperately searching for the daughter he lost 200 years Ago. That is the story of John Birmingham's Girl in Time, which S.M. Sterling described as a smashing time travel cross-cultural adventure, deranged and brilliant. I got to say, I read it too. I really liked it and John Birmingham can't pay me to say that I liked his book only to talk about it, but I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It is a rollicking, time-traveling adventure. The star is Katie McCall. She's ready to be rich and famous. The money is going to come into her bank from her app sales. She's going to be this huge, successful star. And then comes Marshall John, Titanic Smith, who rescues her, and then they're both lost in time. Time Magazine wrote about Weapons of Choice, John Birmingham's first time-travel novel, which we covered in episode 163, of the incomparable that it was like a clive cussler novel fell into a transporter beam with a stephen ambrose history and they came out all fused together a girl in time is kind of like that like your favorite episode of doctor who got mashed up with a cowboy mythology of deadwood and justified while joss whedon watched to make sure that katie mccall smashed all the key performance indicators for a modern female hero also and i am not kidding about this pineapple and pepperoni pizza appears in this book Hmm. Uh, but because John recognizes some people are understandably frightened of pineapple and pepperoni pizza and wonder what it might do to a book, even one as awesome as this, for the next week he has dropped the price of the ebook to $2. Just for incomparable listeners, $2 right now. Get it from your preferred online bookstore, but get it quick before that yummy pizza goes cold. A Girl in Time by John Birmingham
0: the notion that god that gods don't live in america is you know it's the plural gods or like gods of things gods of concepts and we have one um you know overarching uh, unitary god or trinary god um that's swept through parts of the world and america it's taken f- strong root but of course uh jesus the holy ghost God, the Father, don't appear in this. And in right. the um, edition I read, there's he's like, hey, at the end, he's like, hey, you know, well, I wrote this bit about Jesus. So I thought, how could you have this book and not have Jesus appear? But I didn't want it to be a battle between or you know, the one governor. So here's the part I cut out. And I read it. I'm like, yep, there's a reason you cut this out.
1: And I, I like what Gaiman said about that, which is that in the scenario of his book, um, because people ask, "Where's God? Where's Jesus?" Uh, he yeah. says, "He says they're doing so well in North America yeah. that they don't need—they're they're not going to deal with any of this Penny Annie business that's happening down on this level, right? No, that's like, totally they, they're right. They're not talking to Odin. Jesus will not take Odin's calls.
4: Okay, they don't need to go to the Corn Palace for a meetup. They're fine.
1: Yeah, exactly right." <laughs> And I think that is so deft of Gaiman to be like, yes. I'm just not going to even get into it, right? Let's. He doesn't want this to be about, um, he wants it to be about discarded gods, Gar- gods that were brought to the new world and discarded. That's what he wants it to be about, ultimately. And then he places them against sort of the gods that are the cautionary tale of, oh, you're turning your television into your god. And that's the opposition. But that's that's the story he wants to tell here, is really about myth and about maybe modern myths so it's all you know that's 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 his goal
0: can i ask too i feel like there's uh I'm curious about other people's th- thoughts about this is i mean this is a big uh meandery book with a you know kind of wrapper around it and shadow is the element that plays through it that kind of takes us through the journey and the story and he's always on stage even when a lot of actions happening off stage but the thing with Hinselman i found fascinating and i'd remembered oh, yeah. that from my reading and i uh-huh. couldn't remember how it fit into the book and it, even to the point that wednesday stashes shadow in this place in Lakeside uh this bizarrely uh uh flourishing community in the middle of a depressed area and everyone is happy and it just kind of has that like we're all you know, everything is fine, but everything really does seem fine and then all these coincidences pile up. But Hinselman is a very interesting character. He's presented very well, the town is painted very well, and then at the end, the fact that Gaiman comes back and says, Okay, the war didn't happen. We've finished everything off. Everything's tied up, but wait a minute, there's that guy in Lakeside there's We're the, gonna go back. And the
1: mystery of the missing girl, right? And the, yeah. and the history of the the book that he happens to pick up that's the minutes of the town council from 100 well, that was years It's a
0: critical part of the story, but I feel like I don't, I feel like Gaiman has tied that together in a way that uh-huh. I don't fully get. I don't think it's bad storytelling. I think it's good storytelling that like, it's almost like Hinzelmann is a nugget, like, he's the, he's a good thing for this town. It's, you know, the, it, is it a rotten thing at the core? Think about the, the ones who, uh, the ones who walk away from Omalas. This is basically that story, right? Uh, the Ursula, like, Kayla Gwynn story that's so powerful is, uh, you know, you can have everything you want in this town. Everything will be great. Great. We're just going to kill one child. A really nice one, though. The kids are going to be great Who we kill one a year. Except and that the one town year will thrive. where we got a no good Except, uh, kid. One. Yeah. But, that, but it's that, that was... notion. He's like, the people really know that's where they're bargaining. He's kind of like, well, I think they sort of do. And and there's so there's a, a kind of rotten or is it a good deal? Um, but this moral problem that is off to the side of all the picaresque stuff. It happens in one place when we come back to it. I, I don't know how people feel about that in terms of the structure of the book.
1: The thing I remember most of this book before I reread it was – all of the stuff in that town and hinselman. <laughs> exactly. that's, that's what, I, was what say. I that's what i remember yep, yep. it's yep. like it's like a really great novella inside this novel yeah
4: when i think of american gods i think of first the hinselman story which i think is great mm-hmm. and is so grotesque when you learn his true origins and <laughs> the descriptions of house on the rock everything yes. else drops out of my head
3: <laughs>
1: yeah same yeah. And
3: I, I think it's such a beautiful, well, beautiful, relatively <laughs> <laughs> illustration of kind of Shadow's, uh, metamorphosis as a person and his realization of what has been happening this whole time. Like, it, it was just this kind of like, he was like, yeah, this is a really nice town. And oh, that Huntsman guy is kind of interesting with his car and his stories. He's a great storyteller. And then all of a sudden it's like, Wait, I see what's happening. (laughs) And I think that that's such a great illustration and such a great tie in from, you know, earlier in the novel that he's just like, yeah, I figured this out. You suck.
1: There's some great threats to I mean, it feels a little bit like a again, like it could be its own thing, just just that story because he gets the book and he knows. It's, oh, look, there's a guy who looks just like Hinselman in the past, right? <laughs> and uh, oh, won't he like that? And at one point, Shadow takes the book with him because if he runs into Hinselman, he's going to show it to him. And I'm thinking, oh, oh man, <laughs>
4: this is <has> been- <laughs> Shadow. Everyone you've met since you left jail is a god.
1: Yeah. Put it together, right, but but if Hinselman finds out, then it's going to be like just like um the the sh- the sheriff's dad who figured it out, he says at the end and had to be taken care of, and it doesn't come to pass he doesn't show the book to Hintzelman. it's not a it's not a thing but Um, and Gaiman does this callback too, where we had a little vignette about the, about the character who turns into Hinselman at the very early on in the book. That's this kind of horrific vignette. And then, then that's the callback of like, that's what you were seeing there is the creation of this. Of this uh, this worshipped figure that was a child who was taken away from his parents and but all isn't that. that
0: kind of a metaphor for America that as a child who was raised in darkness and killed brutally to serve as this there, sacrificial there are so object. many met- I mean no, they're
1: stacked no. up Ooh. like the metaphors are stacked up the small town is a metaphor the storytelling of Henselman is inside the storytelling of Gaiman but it's also about the storytelling of myths that create the gods ah there's it's, so much. it's metaphors
4: all the way down you could pull out Henselman entirely and just have you know little town they had this quaint tradition about sinking the a clunker uh, cl- clunker every year and now here's the twist and it w- i think it would be a lot like the lottery
1: Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. One of my yeah. favorite things about this book, by the way, is that um, Shadow puts down money on the time that the clunker goes in the water, and that's when he sinks the clunker when he finds the dead girl oh, in, the, in the... I didn't the go park. to
0: check that. I missed that detail.
1: Yeah, because... of course he did. Oh, yeah. It's the time. It is. It's like, <laughs> which I would say is not is not following by the rules. If you go out onto the ice and make it sink at that time, you don't get your money from the lottery. <laughs> the, I'm sorry. This
0: ties into... it. There's a Dirk Gently thing, and it's actually a common thread in a lot of you know, science fiction and fantasy, too, is that... In the Dirk Gently books, he, uh, in the tea time one, he, People ask him things and he's he gives them he's pretending to be a medium at one point. He gives curt responses and every single thing he says is true and it comes true by the end of the book and you have to kinda of go back and check. Um and I think uh what was the, we did a, a episode on something where it turned out if you checked everything that was stated and predicted was true as well. I've forgotten what it was, but but in this too, it's like Shadow um doesn't know he doesn't know he's a god until we get well into it, although, you know, it sort of becomes more obvious, but um or he's a half god. At least um, demigod but, uh, the things he says are 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 they're not prophetic he doesn't necessarily make them happen well in that case i guess he did but there's like a there's just a clockwork aspect well
1: all the it. all the coincidences are not coincidences is right. the story the of this book are- like everything that we think is like oh isn't that lucky it's like no that wasn't lucky that was part of the the part of
0: the story. Oh, oh yeah, because Gaiman had a Gaiman had to come back and tell us that Hinselman is the one is the reason there were all these coincidences in this little town. Right. That he wasn't a bad story. I'm not a bad writer. This wasn't hack writing.
1: Yeah, Loki being his cellmate is another good example of like, you know, it's a setup. It's a setup. That's the yeah. only at least he puts in right, Gaiman being a good writer, he's like, all right, let me show you how I did this trick. <laughs> well, yeah. At first you think it works the other
4: way that like, oh, I'm clever. I'm a clever reader. I recognize that the guy's name was Loki Lysmith. Therefore, I figured out that Wednesday must have learned all about Shadow from his cellmate. Oh, ho, ho. And then it turns out no. actually, Wednesday knew before that.
2: yeah, that's good. yep it's 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 kind of like the way I like to explain Penn and Teller is that they they do show you how tricks are done, but they don't actually show you how they do their tricks. Right, and then you get surprised again. It's like they're they're showing you. They do the trick. They show you how to do the trick, and they still pull something while you're showing while you're watching how they did it. Mm-hmm. And and Gaiman does that very nicely. In this. double misdirection.
1: Let's talk about Shadow because he is our main character. He's an interesting guy. He's he's in uh, he's in prison. We never really get a lot of information about why he's in prison. There's a little bit, but not a lot. He beat the heck out of the two guys. He
4: robbed the bank with yeah walked away with the money but they could never prove that he took the money and the two guys wouldn't testify about the bank robbery so they were only able to put him away for three years for okay there there you go
1: there you go but it's it's not it's not a big mystery it's just handled and it's and and it's just like and he's not like convicted of a crime he didn't commit it's just he did this thing he's serving some time he's gonna get out um we meet him in jail and uh he's going to get get out and get back to his his wife back in uh in in town and then everything goes wrong because it turns out that she dies just as he's being released that she dies with his best friend who's going to give him the job when he goes back that they were having an affair and it is into this complete like destruction of his attempted reentry into the world where Mr. Wednesday comes in and then of course what's interesting is he goes to the he go this is something I did remember he goes to the funeral he's completely um completely confused and 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 beside himself he flips a a gold coin into her uh grave and uh she comes back to life and appears throughout the rest of the book mostly as a reanimated uh dead body who kills people and uh it's a really interesting relationship (laughs) that they have (laughs) whoops
3: and she was also involved in the whole robbery plot somehow but yes. i don't think that's ever really explained like at one point or a couple points maybe even she apologizes for getting yes. shadow involved yeah but it's never really laid out how she's involved in that exactly and i would kind of like to know
1: Yeah, there's, there's, like I said, they definitely don't seem to get all the details of what's, you get the sense there's more to that crime than let's on. Laura is a really interesting character, right? I mean, the way we meet her is first as this idealized, you know, woman who's the wife of the prisoner who's going to finally get back to his sweetheart. And then we get to see her as the, oh no, but she was actually cheating on you behind your back and all of that. And so we get both extremes, right? And then when we meet her, first she's already dead but now is also walking around which is interesting and uh and 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 so you get this really weird ambivalent kind of relationship where there's love but there's also an acknowledgement that there's impenetrable like barriers between them not only the uh the nature of how she died which was as a part of having an affair with this guy but also the fact that she's dead now so you know it's the metaphorical and literal reasons why they can't really connect. And it's I I just find the whole relationship kind of fascinating that there's this great um kind of love between them and and yet also this kind of inseparable barrier between them.
3: He's very calm about the whole thing, which is like like she shows up dead in his hotel room and asks for a cigarette and he's like okay, sure. I'll go buy a pack of cigarettes, and I'm like, "Huh? Isn't that Shadow though?
1: Like, that's that's one of yeah. the funny things about Shadow is that he's yeah. he 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 comes across. I mean, we we learn his origin story, right? Which was that he was he was a a picked on bookish kid, and then he grew and he became treated. Then he was treated like a like a big dumb guy, but he's actually smart. He gets underestimated all the time and uh and also has this thing where he can he can do damage and be violent but um but unless brought to that point he's just kind of easygoing and passive uh, it's a, it's a fascinating kind of collection of traits yeah unflappable uh shadow meets wednesday so early that i feel like Everything we see from Shadow after that, he's kind of at the point where he's like, All right, gods, got it. Right. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and he has an attitude that's like, uh, You know, as long as you're paying me, I'll believe whatever you want, buddy. That's kind of how I feel about like, take a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where
4: you always have to have people say, Oh, there's no magic spell on you. Like, it's been a magic spell every other time.
2: (laughs) Right. Are you sure there aren't leprechauns? (laughs) <laughs> he he reminds me a little bit of the character Parker from the Richard Stark, uh, Donald Westlake novels, uh, who is an unflappable uh, con man. I mean, he is, you know, he's out for nobody but Parker. Um, but th- there's something of of the same kind of, you know, well, this is this is the situation I'm in. I accept it. I go forward. What do I do now? And he only acts when he has to
0: this is a coming of age story too, right? Like he's kind of a big guy who never grew up. He's been a little shiftless. He somehow – maybe his wife or maybe he kind of got into that situation, uh, committed an act of violence that was unusual for him. And then he's kind of meandering around. He's never figured out what he has. Is it, oh, I know what I was thinking too is that that also ties into the Laura saying about him, you never seem like you were alive. I'd walk into a room yeah, and be right. surprised you were there. There's no presence. She's the dead one and she says that. I'm dead and I'm saying yeah. this to you. But I think – I mean obviously the whole book is – a story of him actually achieving his power of the father, you know, the Freudian thing, your father has to die before you actually, you know, reach your own manhood or adulthood.
1: This is where he learns that Odin is his father, right? That's one mm-hmm. of the things that comes up, and it's, and it's sort of built to, talking about his, his mother traveling around the world, and he ends up as a kid in San Francisco at one point, and all that, and then we finally realize that, yeah, Odin is his father, and that makes a lot of sense then, that he was disconnected from his, like, actual life, and now this insanity that we're viewing of gods and wars and things like that actually is the thing that connects him back to to reality for him and who he is as a person. This episode of The Incomparable is sponsored in part by Audible. Do you love books but find you never have time to read them? Do you listen to The Incomparable Book Club episode having not actually read books because you like the idea but never find the time? Guess what? Audible can solve this problem because with Audible, you can get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while you're living your life, while you're on the go, wherever you are, their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, Windows phone, you name it. You can download and listen on Kindle Fire, 500 different MP3 players, basically any device you can think of will play these Audible books and you can listen. And with Audible, you own your books. You access them anytime and anywhere. Go back to them later. They're not checked out or anything like that. They're yours to use right from your smartphone. And there is something called the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, don't worry. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime. No questions asked. Now, in this very episode, we discuss the full cast audiobook production of American Gods and how amazing it is, guess what? it's on Audible. So that could be your book right there. The full cast production of American Gods featuring a bunch of great actors, including Dennis Boutsikaris, who at once personally insulted several members of the Incomparable staff. <laughs> it's a long story. Anyway, he's a great actor and uh, it's a great book. So you could check that out. That could be your Audible choice or any of the books in our What Are We Reading, other than that out of print book that Glenn's going to mention, uh, because it's Glenn. Those are on Audible. I mean, these Audible's got it all and you can pick it. In including American Gods, with the full cast. And if you're like me, you're in the kitchen, you're washing the dishes and cooking dinner, and you need something to do, guess what? Pop some earbuds in your ears and the time will fly by as you make your kitchen clean and feed your family while listening to a great book. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. So turn your cooking time or your workout or your walk into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to Audible.com slash Snell to start now. Actually, you know one of the things and this is Neil Gaiman moving to Minnesota from England. Um, <laughs> the portrayals of intense cold like shadow at one point goes yeah. out of the house and says it's pretty cold and he's almost dead like a mile later because it's like 30 below and he didn't realize it it's yep. like I, that stuck with me too and the, and the details of like how you put tape on the windows with like plastic wrap and all that and it's like that neil Gaiman learned it because he moved to minnesota but uh, as a native californian <laughs> especially it's like wow i i that stuck with me that this town where it's intensely cold like that it's just amazing detail not it doesn't have to do with gods it's just like it's really cold there. That was really cool That's the most
2: terrifying thing in the book for you, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, 30 below, are you kidding?
1: Forget that. It's just spectacular. So that's another uh, little just evocative part. There's so much evocative stuff in here. We haven't even mentioned, uh, at least other than as an aside, lots of little short stories in this entire book about like how this, how somebody came to America from somewhere and brought their God along with them. And there are many of those and those are all pretty
2: great too. And I mean, I I kid about you know, I read a lot of American gods and all that. But it, it reminded me of Isaac Dennison. It reminded me of Italo Calvino with, with just these sort of side stories about gods and myth. And it was just that I loved. I didn't mind that. I actually, I almost didn't care about the plot of the book. I really preferred the little digressions. If we're getting snooty,
4: it reminded me a little of the second part of Don Quixote,
2: which is yeah. also very much a story about stories
4: in that mm-hmm. the story will come to a complete stop so somebody can tell you a completely different story, different story for 15 <laughs> pages or so.
1: Well, that's what I say, like, if, if you were looking at this as a book editor, you could have paired this way back mm-hmm. to, oh, it's yeah. a fun story, fun fantasy story, right? But Gaiman has enough clout that he's going to be listened to, and and he's so good at it. I mean, this is, I want to come back to this. Like, when he was writing this book, He was, I mean, he wrote Neverwhere. It's true, but like he was famous comic book writer, Neil Gaiman, right? Right. Famous comic book writer, Neil Gaiman. And he writes American Gods. And I read it and I think. Well, I mean, now it's a lot less obvious or it's a lot more obvious, right? Because we know Neil Gaiman now, but I read it and I think, damn, this guy was so good. Like, Neverwhere is good, but it's not on the level of American Gods in terms of his just like sheer writing skill, I think. He'd done half of Good Omens. I don't like no, Good Omens. I don't like Good Omens at all.
4: Well, I like I Good Omens it. very much. Okay. <laughs> and, and I like Neverwhere,
1: too. Neverwhere is a good book, Just but I don't I don't thinner. like gasp at paragraphs yes. in Neverwhere and go like, yeah. oh, my God, this guy no. is such a good writer. And in American Gods, I did that all the time.
0: I was thinking about the um, Whiskey Jack business in terms of the writing where they call him Whiskey Jack, and, he, and over a few pages in the shadows, thinking in his head— doesn't, there's too many syllables. They're not saying whiskey jack, but they keep saying whiskey jack, whiskey jack. And then after a little while it introduces the whiskey jack or whatever yeah. the pronunciation is. And, but it's slow. And so you're hearing shadow hear something wrong and interpret it in a different way. And I thought it was very clever, but it, it didn't bug me because I'm like, I have this little itch in my head. Like, okay, it's not whiskey jack. What is it? Is he going to tell us? Is he going to tell us? And the story progresses. And so then it's like, Oh, it's just more complicated to say name.
1: I think there's a lot of respect for Native Americans in this book that I Appreciate too, if you're going to talk about American gods, you need to talk about the Native American gods too and so I like that we have a, we have a Native American character in Sam, and we have a Native American God, and then we have the story of them coming because the Native Americans were also immigrants thousands of years ago to this continent and we get that story too and i like all of that all of that stuff is 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 pretty cool too and it's just mixed into the pot and it's game and saying everybody brought their baggage with them when they came here this is a story as old as time like in fact it's the it's the the egyptians came here which is also by the way i would just say it's really cool but totally not supported by historical records but uh, <laughs> but the, the egyptians came to the mississippi river cool. sure why not and then we know that the norse came to uh came to north america around a thousand.
0: They all brought their baggage with them and left it here. It's great. He, he even works in that uh, that scout in the uh, the tribe that's kind of coming over the land bridge, who's gender bending and is you know it's a scout who's perceived as a a man and does a man's job uh, and is married and then has a child you know through whatever offices. And I was like that. My <laughs> recollection. I don't have a ton of uh, anthropological history, but my recollection is that is common across many cultures. Is that men and women had more fluid roles depending on what was needed. They would step into a gender role as opposed to being required to be of that gender or being of a fixed gender
1: i like the also i think one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking moments in is the story about the uh about the first people coming to north america and the end of that which is basically like those people stayed but of course every some of them stayed but the others moved on and they created other tribes and all of that and then you know many thousands of years later some of those uh, descendants came back to this original valley, which was the first valley that was that was lived in, and killed all the people who were there, and found and their, destroyed their god, and, and found their god in the cave and threw it down a ravine. It's like it's so sad, but that's the depth. That's deep history, right? Deep uh, human history of tens of thousands of years. Not even knowing that those were the first. They were their relatives, and the the first place that the, that they as a people uh, landed in this continent. It's just it's yeah, it's tragic and beautiful all. All yeah, right. he had one. to make up the
4: details, but the overall story is certainly accurate, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's what the that's what the history shows. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of Chernobog. I think he is a wonderful <laughs> I'm not character. Shocked.
1: It's a great character. He's uh,
0: <laughs> 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 Wow. Well, maybe I am Chernobog. Maybe I'm Bielabog. It depends it on the It depends day. on the season, yeah. But I just, I love that sort of weird flat with these old Slavic people who are gods, but also, you know, overboiling vegetables and... Um, just the uh, I, 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 he comes from almost a different book, but he sort of fits in like uh, like a Nazi like you feel like they 're visiting from another story into this story, and there 's a whole other world i mean which leads us to nazi boys but um, but cherubog I think there 's this this uh, the fact is he 's sort of resigned to his fate, he figures he 's eventually going to die out, all the people who believe him are gone he 's a pretty dark god he liked human sacrifice that was part of what he was about, and they've all these great forces arrayed, and, uh, and then he gets, you know, he, he gets younger because he sort of absorbs energy from the fight, and that bet he makes, that wonderful moment when Shadow realizes he has to put something at stake to make it real, and it's kind of a little bit of a shifting point, that's when, um, uh, Zoya uh, Bolonchnaya takes him off and gives him the moon and so forth. But it's this great thing. It's like he puts himself on the line. It's like, okay, well, at some point when we're all done, uh, you come back and I'm going to hit you in the head with a hammer and kill you. So I was like, all right, and then I'll win the next game. You come with us. Okay, that's the deal. And it's always hanging over us for the rest of the novel, even though we're pretty sure – I mean I was pretty sure the first time I read this that it wasn't going to end with Shadow getting his head bashed in. But right. That was cool. I knew something would happen.
1: Yeah. No, he's fun. He's a cr- cranky old man, like can- cranky crusty old guy who's
0: capable. He gets younger because but- by the end he's younger. He looks healthier. And he becomes Beelabog because the world is changing. It is a brighter world.
1: And the three sisters are cool. There's, I mean, we could go on forever about the, all the details because there are a lot of really interesting characters. We mentioned M- Mr. Ibis and Jackal.
0: Oh, I love Mr.
1: Ibis. And they yeah. run the funeral home. That's a great bit. I love I love that. <laughs> Um there just there are a lot of really interesting gods that we meet along the way and I love that they're all kind of down on their luck. That's why we meet them is that they're not really worshiped so much anymore and and they just have to make do and get by and they tell horror stories of like gods that they've known who have fallen on even harder times like uh wh- whoever it is who ends up just being a, a bird and eating roadkill. Oh Horus. Horus Horus
0: goes mad and yeah. is just a bird most of the time.
1: Yeah. I
4: would like to briefly complain about the Forgotten God, if I may.
0: Everybody wants to. Go ahead. All right. There is a
4: character who Neil Gaiman goes out of his way to describe as rich and at the center of things, but that Shadow cannot remember at all.
0: Beautifully presented. And
4: on the face of it, I think that's really cool. However— I also think Neil Gaiman had a specific God in mind. He's said, yes, there is a specific God that can be figured out. And I think that it completely fails to describe whatever God he's picking, whether it's Hades, which is a lot of people's guess. At one point, the fact on his website, somebody asked, who is it? And then he said, Well, I was going to answer, but then I got this other email saying, Please don't tell people. So now I'm never going to answer that question.
1: Well, isn't it beautiful for it to be undefined like that? That it's the, uh, it reminds me of yes. the silence in Doctor Who, right? <laughs> you look away and you can't remember it anymore. It's kind of really cool in the
0: story. And do we need to know? It's a story. It's made up. Sometimes, uh, not all the parts of a story fit. I thought it was the invisible hand of the market, except he explicitly states that the intangibles are modern and they are the invisible hand of the market as it, but I think. You know, the invisible hand of the market goes back like it's an economic fact uh, for hundreds of years as a as a concept. But he said, no, it's part of the stock market. So it's not the invisible hand of the right. market.
4: And many people have come up with many guesses. And again, I'm going to say, Neil claims it's a specific God.
0: I like that as a concept, though. It didn't bother me that I didn't know who it was. But I think I started reading the book. I saw some reference to it that you never find out who it was. And so when I read the book again, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm never going to find out. So I yeah. just coped with that.
4: If it hadn't been a real God, I would love it because it would be, oh, somebody we forgot. Although this forgotten God is doing really well for himself. But instead, he got kind of cute about it and said, oh, (laughs) "Oh, it's somebody, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. Yeah, it's
1: not somebody.
3: (laughs) And I'm honestly okay with that. That does. not Yeah,
1: me too. Yeah. Monty's angry at Neil Gaiman's post-publishing statements about the book, not the actual text of the book itself in this case. Right. I want to move on and just let everybody I mean I think american gods is the is the most notable work here to talk about, but I did leave some time because I know some people read or reread Monty High uh, a Nancy Boys okay. for this, and we talked about it a little at the beginning, but if there are things to talk about. Uh, if you've got some things to say about Anansi Boys as the follow-up, it it's unclear whether it really fits in the canon or not. Mr. Nancy is in it only a little bit as a ghost, because the whole story is that Mr. Nancy dies, and he's got two sons that are a mismatched pair of sons who are the legacy to the Anansi, again, spiritual fortune question mark kind of thing that's going on. Um, so, Monty, wh- anything more to say about Anansi Boys? Not really. I mean, it it is a much lighter book. Yeah. It has themes... But not deep themes. It is more, more of a farce too, right down to the fact that like Spider, yeah. Spider uh, pretends to be Charlie and ends up uh, having sex with Charlie's fiance. And I mean, it's like wah wah wah. It is meant to be like a bedroom farce with gods kind of thing in in certain yeah. ways. And yeah. oh boy, I didn't realize my family was just so crazy. Whoa. And uh, and I don't mean that in like it's a fun book, but it is a wacky. Book. I like the thing he brings up a few times in the book,
4: which is that all stories are Anansi stories, even if Anansi doesn't win, because stories are now about cleverness and smartness instead of being tiger stories, which are all about winning through brute force and strength.
1: The thing, the one thing that I remember from this book, and it's actually, I didn't remember that it was from this book until I read the summary. Yeah. And then I was like, Oh, that's what that book is, is the climax happening on the Caribbean island, Yeah, yeah. which is, which is actually pretty dramatic at the end there. That's like the, the stakes are raised and there's the, there's the Caribbean island. And uh, I think there's a storm and yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, what's weird is when the big climax happens, both fat Charlie and spider are often in some kind of, beginning of the world nether realm so they're not actually involved in saving the uh fiancé and her mother no
0: save themselves i i have a i have a uh, something i want to bring up though that ties in both uh american gods gods and Anansi boys which was the the uh, representation of consent and we talked about this a little uh on slack before we did the podcast too um which is i you know i felt it's worse than Anansi boys because uh i feel like it's handled trivially that that uh Rosie, fat Charlie's uh, fiance, she's like, I'm not going to have, you know, I'm not going to sleep over. I'm not going to have sex with you before we get married. And then Shadow waltzes in and he basically says, you're going to have sleep spider. with me. And she's like, okay. Yeah. Or oh, sorry, Spider. But yeah, Spider walks in and says, uh, you'll have sex with me. And she's like, great. And, and there's no consequence to that. She slaps him when she discovers. And that's the end of that. Um, and I felt, uh, both that and then the representation of, uh, of uh, Mr. Wednesday's um, having, to, you know, sort of insatiable need to consume young women, even underage women. And at one point, he notes that one of the things he learned while he was on the World Tree dying was that uh, after he'd had them, they would never have another man again. Uh, it was rather harsh. And So there's there's these different angles. I was thinking, in Anansi Boys in particular it reminded me of like the one of the flaws with uh, Revenge of the Nerds is that when the character has sex with the Darth Vader mask on uh, with the uh, sports guy's girlfriend, and she's and she doesn't know and then takes it off and she's like oh you know essentially oh that was great you know and he's like yeah and it's uh, when he's actually just raped her and uh i felt a little bit of that in this book i know it's not exactly um you know it's not a uh i don't think it's a depiction of sexual assault per se but it comes really close to not making it a, a bad thing Well, i think um,
4: that's on purpose like i'm yes. not telling you anything you don't know about Zeus got up to some stuff. <laughs> oh
2: yeah. <laughs> he he was a really attractive swan. What are you talking
0: about? <laughs> yeah, but I think there's a, there's a consequence too. Is Zeus never gets I mean True. it's it's not just the presentation, it's the consequences that Mr. Wednesday and Mr. Wednesday the consequences he gets killed and he doesn't come back because shadow is the sort of uh won't let him come back. You know, Laura, maybe Laura's the um the uh analog or the the representation of, you know, that force That prevents him because she's the one who ultimately destroys their ability, Loki and he, to to recreate themselves. So there is some But in in Anansi Boys. There isn't. It's uh, I did like the bit in Anansi Boys when Spider says later, you know, he could have forced her to be with him, but he said even human beings know and eventually they become resentful, even while you're forcing them to do something. But I didn't feel like there was a resolution. He didn't suffer for it. it Didn't suffer for what he'd done.
4: I agree with that. Spider says that he rarely learns women's names. And Mr. Wednesday says something like, ah, I've never been that worried about legality. And both of those things kind of pass
2: uncommented on. That's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in in American Gods, you know, again, you've got the analog of Zeus and all that. And, yeah. and so I think that is very intentional. Whereas in Anansi boys, I don't know how I mean, it could be, but. You know, again, all through the writing of it, because I followed his blog while he was doing it, and you know, it's just like this is my Thorn Smith novel, in it. and for a long time that was all he called it. That was the only detail you knew about it. And most people are like, "Who the hell is Thorn Smith?" And it is a little more blithe in its attitudes towards towards the sex farce because you it it can't bear the weight. Right. In a, in a sex farce. It's, you know.
0: it's ostensibly a violent act that's not portrayed as such. You could argue right. that Gaiman tries to redeem it later because Rosie realizes she fell in love with Spider, not with the- Fat Charlie as spider. So maybe it wasn't as unconsensual. She was willing and he was able to guide her along. But I still feel like, I guess that's the thing is like, you can't have like the fact that she slapped him and that's the consequence. Like, okay, well, we've dealt with this issue of misrepresentation and um, being ordered to have sex. Let's move on. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think Gaiman is generally very progressive and is in when he does something that's purient, he, also as something that's really awful that happens to the person, <laughs> so you get <can't. laughs>
4: That doesn't mean anything. He has awful things happen to all his characters all the time.
1: The Zeus thing is what struck me about it in American Gods is there is that scene. The most notable scene is that Shadow and Wednesday get served by a very young waitress, like a 17-year-old waitress in a diner. And he keeps talking to her in this kind of gross old man trying to say charming things to her. And then you realize at some point that he has God powers and he can just make her come to his hotel room and service him later. And... I read that as being, first off, you can't read it without thinking this is bad. Uh, So I judged it and I felt like the author makes it clear that it's something that you should judge. And then two, I just, I felt like this is, this is the thing about these gods is that they have these powers and they abuse them. And it goes all the way back to stories from Greek and Roman mythology about uh, gods having sex with mortals and creating, you know, demigods and doing whatever they want and not caring about how it affects the, the mortal people so um, you know maybe that was me bringing my own read into it but in that scene in American Gods I mean I, I felt like I see what he's doing here that I am meant to be horrified I am meant to think of things like Zeus yeah. and so it yeah. worked for me on that level I didn't need I didn't need more from the author in terms of uh, he got it across to me about what was happening and Shadow Shadow doesn't do anything but I feel like Shadow is being his passive self which is you know he kind of doesn't know what he what he could do
0: And Mr. Wednesday dies forever, so there is that.
1: I would like to briefly talk about
0: roadside attractions.
1: Yes. Which are a huge
4: theme in this book.
1: Yes, this is Neil Gaiman coming to America and being like, wow, here is a thing that exists (laughs) that I did not know about and I'm going to work it into my book and say that these are places of power in American mythology, the roadside attraction. So, on the one hand, I
4: agree with him that roadside attractions are great. House on the Rock sounds amazing. I've paid money to go to a mystery spot. It was amazing. Things rolled uphill. But here's the thing about this. Um, At one point, they... uh, Wednesday is explaining how people built random pl- things in random places because they were places of power. And Shadow says, so Disneyland must be really powerful, right? And Wednesday has to say, uh, maybe a little, but not Disney World. No, no, basically the impression we get is the big successful tourist attractions aren't magical, only the little crappy ones. Mm-hmm. Now, this ties into, I'm going to quote a short paragraph from the book. He rolled over in bed and closed his eyes. It occurred to him that the reason he liked Wednesday and Mr. Nancy and the rest of them better than their opposition was pretty straightforward. They might be dirty and cheap and their food might taste like shit, but at least they didn't speak in cliches. And he would take a roadside attraction, no matter how cheap, how crooked or how sad over a shopping mall any day. And you know what? That really bugs me. The level of classism and looking down on people that that reveals both about Shadow and I think about Neil Gaiman. It really, really bothers me that first of all, you're saying, well, I'm better than those stupid masses because I go to places like House on the Rock, not Disneyland. Oh, my stars. Uh-huh. I would never go there. That's not genuine. It's also saying how much better he is than the idiots who
2: built the roadside attractions. Mm. Both of those
4: really mm. bother me.
2: See, I, I can I can go along with the, you know, going to the roadside attractions, because, I mean, you know, Disney World and things like that are very coldly calculated, whereas one crazy person believed in this as an idea and built this thing. And so it's like, okay, it's about faith. It's about belief. It's about, you know, being a little crazy.
4: One crazy person built Disneyland, David. Yeah, <laughs> With a that's bunch why, of marketing that's why people Disneyland too. Disneyland has some
1: stuff, and Disney World has no magic because yeah. it's the corporate brand extension.
2: But I think you're you're on on the right track too with the uh, looking down on the people who built the roadside attractions.
1: I don't know. I I read it as the char uh, as Neil Gaiman being charmed by Americana. That's how I read it. Is that oh, well, yeah,
4: yeah. He's charmed by these charming poor people and their charming lack of artifice. He's really <laughs> looking looking down on them.
0: Monty, there's a thing that's described, which is that uh two generations after people had to do something out of poverty, it becomes an item at Restoration Hardware. Like it's the artisanal mm. pasta that was actually made because it was the only thing people could afford to make two generations ago. And it's exactly that. It's like, look at this wonderful magic these yokels accidentally made that's really terrific because we can appreciate it.
1: I don't know. I, I Again, I, I think that it is not looking down on them, but appreciating them as more authentic than the things that are – constructed to be amusements and uh, you know some of this may be some of this may be also him trying to create a dichotomy between the old and the new where the new really, is corporate yeah. pleasure setters that are, are built for everybody as profit you know, as profit generators, and the uh, the old are people who just believed in a thing, or people found it fun, and it became popular kind of organically. So I, I didn't I didn't read it quite as bad as that. Um, but I, House on know. the Rock opened four years after
4: Disneyland. Both of them were the creation <laughs> of a creative person who wanted to spend a lot of money creating a tourist attraction. Mm. The only difference between them is that Walt Disney knew what he was doing and was not crazy. <laughs> Also, he knew where to put a tra- tourist attraction.
0: The contempt in the book for, for Paul Bunyan, though, ties into this. It's a different aspect, but, but John Chapman has become a, um, like a kind of god, but not exactly. Yeah, and it reads like, I mean, I had the same reaction after reading, uh, uh, the Michael Pollan book, uh, uh, the one about apples and, uh, pot and so forth. I've forgotten the name of the book. Um, but the, what I learned that I didn't know that Johnny Appleseed basically owned tracts of land, <laughs> was a good businessman, had really strange ideas, but he was basically selling apples to, uh, for people to make Applejack out of because that was safe. You could drink, uh, fermented alcohol or, uh, distilled alcohol and it was made very simply. Anyway, I thought people were, I thought he was planting apples because he ate them, but you can't eat apples planted that way. And I'm like, oh, so Neil Gaiman just read a book about this when he read American Gods and he had to stick that <laughs> in and say I'm John I'm the real guy that Paul Bunyan but I do get when he says uh something like nobody ever tells stories about Paul Bunyan nobody believes in Paul Bunyan you're like I and mean, it's like Paul Bunyan like knocked out part of the mythology because an ad agency came up with him and I was like you know I've never really liked Paul Bunyan
1: mm-hmm.
0: never really liked that guy
4: He's got a bunch of statues That's true way more than Johnny Apples. and said. roadside
1: attractions it's true. It's no less
3: and the Blue Ox. Yeah. How can you not love Babe the Blue Ox? Was right. it Babe? Yeah. It was Babe. Yeah. yeah. Babe yeah. the Blue it was Ox. Totally babe.
1: No one's complaining about Babe. I think what Gaiman's saying is that tall tales aren't gods because they're not the same. Although I I have yeah, I have some issues with that too. It's yeah. like, well, really, but if it's like oral tradition <laughs> of yeah. of stories that you're telling, does it does it make a difference? <laughs> and he says, "Yes, it does. You must
0: worship, They must be yeah. worshipped, or else they oh. do not. They do not count." Paul Bunyan comes out of mythology, but he's bigger than life. There's no character. He's only characteristics, and he was spread as kind of an advertising thing, as an agglomeration of things, as opposed to a you know uh, something that arose out of culture. Uh, more, I think. I think Gaiman is making the distinction between vernacular and manufactured, um, which may be an artificial distinction. It really is based on money, You know, the, the, <laughs> the house and the rock. He's walking a, a
1: really narrow line here because he wants the story he wants to tell the story he wants to tell and it does start to break apart if you say well what about Paul Bunyan or you know where what about Buddha what about you know what about what about these other religions what about Muhammad what about like there are so many and and he's like duh, duh, duh. we're not going to talk about any other religions yeah. <laughs> it's just the ones that I want I want the I want the kind of outmoded religions over here and I want and it's like well what about media wouldn't like the people who said that they liked they were Jedi they believed in the Jedi when they filled out the census yeah. form, maybe Obi Wan Kenobi should be around. It's like, nope, nope, nope. No, We're no, not copyright issues. No, nope, yep. nope, nope. Right? <laughs> I, can, I can only use public domain gods. So it's tricky, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think
4: bringing Johnny Appleseed and Paul Bunyan into the story at all was kind of a mistake. Like, you don't need to go down that alley
3: and i i kind of felt like that that whole the idea of only using public domain gods is kind of why he poo-pooed <laughs> things like disneyland and disney world otherwise oh, you've got mickey and minnie hmm. showing up and in, in this battle and like one copyright issues right and two nobody wants to see Mi- the evil side of mickey mouse right oh, like, oh, I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: i grew up near disney world i know the evil side of mickey mouse <laughs>
3: But explaining that to children.
4: <laughs> Every Saturday night out beating up locals.
1: <laughs> All right. We should uh, we should wrap this up. I think, yes, it is a little bit long, but I really enjoyed rereading it and I like it. And I recommend that people read American Gods. Before you go out and watch that TV show, read the book. Absolutely. It is beautifully written and has a lot of fun yeah. concepts in it. I feel like I complained a
4: lot. I really like American Gods. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: And oh, this yeah. time around, I actually listened to like the full cast audiobook as opposed to reading it because I know I wasn't going to have time to read both of these books. Um, so I got it from Audible and it was actually a really enjoyable like performance and work of art of its, mm. in a, of itself in that format. So if you don't want to like sit down and read it, that audiobook is amazing. It's great. Oh yeah.
2: There, there are a few books where I find the audiobook as enjoyable as the book and if there's a movie sometimes the movie this is one of those
0: I I recommend American Gods also I really enjoyed rereading it I think it's very clever Anansi Boys I enjoyed reading but I don't remember I'm looking at the plot now on my screen and I hardly remember it it keeps it's the it's the nameless plot um <laughs> that we don't know but I think mean, it's a good read but I don't think it has I mean it has nowhere near the impact or or um like scope of uh, American Gods yeah
3: yeah, I do really love the, the like the the ghosts in Anansi Boys. I think mm-hmm. that like that whole, uh, that whole subplot was great. I loved it a lot.
2: I mean, I love that he's able to tell a totally different story using a similar concept or a similar set of characters. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't stick. I don't think I ever said this explicitly, but the reason
4: Anansi Boys isn't really a sequel to American Gods. It's not... The whole cosmology is different in Nancy Boys. Yeah. The premise of it is the gods are the animals people told stories about in prehistory. There's still tiger, there's still spider, there's still bird woman.
1: And there's this family, like... An- Anansi dies and bequeaths his powers to his children, which is not how it works in American gods either. And if you're one of the
4: personifications of these things, you can go to other countries. It's fine. It's fine. Right. So, so there isn't the U.S. version oh, of Anansi. Oh. It's,
2: it's, it's wholly within Anansi's mythology as opposed to shared among all the Yeah,
0: gods. that's that's about right. The epilogue is kind of thing where he meets uh, the, the Odin in Iceland. It's just this very sweet little weird thing yeah. and that god being so relatively benign and almost childlike and just kind of being like a gaudy god like not some big trickster or whatever he's just kind of like no, he's living large right yeah he's a solid old god with lots of belief behind him and it's very sweet
1: very quickly before we go I'd like to go around and do a very quick round of something you've read recently we call this what are we reading something you've read recently uh,
2: that you've enjoyed
1: that we could also recommend to people uh, David do you want to uh, give us something that you've read recently yeah
2: I've I've got two books right now I I just read uh, the um, story of your life by Ted Chiang. Ah, yes. Which I had put off yes. for a long time, and I'm currently reading The Black Widow by Daniel Silva. Which is a spy novel.
1: Read about that story in Incomparable episode thirty-two, where we talked about it, including me and Glenn. We're on that episode. I what? That one. Glenn, what are you reading?
0: Well, I've got books I'm not reading in big stacks, but um,
1: I, I have... <laughs> oh, tell us about those. Yeah. What are you not reading? That would be oh, oh man, if we're, if we're talking stacks, I've got uh, a
0: bunch. I was recently reading a beautifully typeset book from 1927, but that's neither here nor there. I've got Babylon's Ashes, the latest of the Expanse books, which I've been unable to read. I don't want to do any spoiling. so. But like, I picked it up, and I was like, I cannot read this in the current world climate. Um, I realized something at that moment, which was most fantasy and sci- science fiction books are about the world being destroyed – or Earth being destroyed or Earth having had been destroyed or Earth in the process of about to collapse. So I go and I'm like, I'm going to read something fun. I'll read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Doh! <laughs> Doh! <the> first chapter. <laughs> Doh! Yeah. That was oh, a man. First mistake so I, I did just – for, um, escapism, for escapism and for an episode of A Foot, we read some, um, uh, the Franny Fisher mystery novels by Carrie Greenwood. We read a few for an episode, uh, some a few weeks ago. And, uh, I wound up, um, really enjoying the book so much. I've read the whole series to date and they're, they're very, um, they're well constructed. I love the characters in them. It's richly fleshed out. Uh, they started, I didn't realize until reading recently that Carrie Greenwood was sort of writing some doing some research about Melbourne, which, by the way, Melbourne was almost called Batman Australia. I have to spread this fact uh-huh. everywhere. The city yeah. was almost called Batman. I love this. Um, but she was doing some historical research, uh, wound up through a series of things, pitching a novel and then writing this and then turning into the series that's into, um, TV shows as well. So I read the whole, the whole run of, I think, 14 or 15 books. And they're basically very delightful, good romps. If you like, um, yes. I'd say more the Nero Wolf kind of genre, it's actually very like that in some ways, uh, more than, say, an Agatha Christie. And uh, there you go. Fun thing yeah, to read right they're now. charming.
4: All right. Monty, what are you reading? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of L. Frank Baum's Oz books, but I've never read the books that were written after them. Oh, my goodness. <gasps> the Ruth Plumley Thompson. I'm working my way through the Ruth Plumley Thompson books. Uh, When I get to the end of those, John R. Neal apparently wrote one Mm -hmm. on the theory that he's been drawing them forever. He might as well tell the story himself. Why not? So far, they're not great. (laughs) I've gotten through the Royal Book of Oz and Kabumpo in Oz, but I'm told that after a few, she really gets into a groove and Mm -hmm. they will feel very Ozzy. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Also, I realize how this will sound given an earlier rant I'd made in this episode. (laughs) I am reading a book entitled Walt Disney, an American original by Bob Thomas. It is a biography of Walt Disney. All right. Aline, what are you reading?
3: Um, so I'm actually on kind of a rereading jag because I'm just having a hard time getting into new books right now. So I am currently rereading the Expanse series. Oh. I'm on Cibola Burn right now. Um, and I'm listening to the fifth season. Um, again, thank you audible.com for not sponsoring this episode, but I'm going to talk about you anyway. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, in preparation for, uh, upcoming Maybe Book Club shows, and I need to get, get a boogie on Nebula Best Novel Novel oh, yeah. Nominees soon. But uh, they're all first in a series, and I'm like, I'm already invested in so many so ongoing many series. series. I'm having a hard time convincing myself to get started. Yeah. So I, hear you. I need to buckle down and do that, though.
1: Well, speaking of uh, sponsors, I'm not going to tell you one of the books that I read most recently is one of our sponsors in this episode. So... You will have already heard that <laughs> ad by now, thanks to John birmingham. <laughs> i I enjoyed um, Becky Chambers a Close in Common Orbit, which is a s- sort of it's yes. sort of a sequel to the long way to a Small Angry Planet. Yeah. Um, Small Angry Planet's a weird book. It feels like a series uh, you know of episodes of a TV show. Uh, Close in Common Orbit, much more of a novel. doesn't really follow many of the characters. It's sort of one character kind of from the first book. But I thought it was really good, like really good and legitimately a novel and emotional mm. and smart and has lots of questions about like finding your way in the world. And it's kind of the coming of age story of an artificial intelligence, kind of. Um, Really liked it. Thought that was really good. Yeah. Like a way I was, it was so much past my expectations and I liked the first book, but for a second novel like she killed it she did she did a great job I recently yeah. read for an upcoming episode of The Incomparable I read The Broken Kingdoms which is the second book of N.K. Jemisin's Inheritance Trilogy and uh, I, I I read The 100,000 Kingdoms and then I just never continued with that series and despite the fact Glenn told me that they were all really good he was right oh they're so good it's really good yeah
3: they are Broken
1: <laughs> Kingdoms really great book um and then uh, to wrap it up, I've got a couple of books. So uh, my longtime friend, Tom Negrino, who was a, an incomparable listener, big sci-fi fan, passed away this week. And I decided that to honor Tom, uh, who never got to be on the show, although we talked about it a couple of times. He did see us do our presentation at uh, Sasquan when we did the radio theater at Sasquan. He, he and uh, his wife, Dory, mm-hmm. came to the came to the show. So I looked up uh, Tom's Goodreads because he's a Goodreads friend and uh, two books that he he rated uh, five stars that are fairly recent uh, sci-fi fantasy novels that you might want to check out. Up Against It by M.J. Locke and Redemption Arc by Alistair Reynolds. Both five stars from Tom Negrino. And that guy knew what he was mm. talking about. So those are probably both very good books. You should check them out. And we're going to miss you, Tom. So that's it for this edition of The Uncomfortable. I want to thank my uh, guests for uh, helping me uh, go back and reread books that I'd forgotten about. <laughs> Because that (laughs) happened, And I enjoyed them. Uh, I enjoyed rereading American Gods again. Aline Sims, thank you so much for being here.
3: Yeah, I always love being on the show.
1: Monty Ashley, thank you. See, it's low key. Yeah. It's really low key. (laughs) If you say it. I mean, I do like that Shadow says it out loud, and he's like, oh.
4: (laughs) I like how slow he is on that one. You know your pal is Odin, and you said low-key several times.
1: (laughs) Not the brightest at all times. David Lohr, thank you. Thank you. And Glenn Fleischmann thank you very much. I'm the nameless
0: Glenn, and as I should be. (laughs) Thanks for having me on.
1: And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will be back next week with another edition of The Incomparable. Until then, goodbye. Nobody leaves home alive, right? But it's. <laughs> what? Wait, wait, nobody leaves home alive, Glenn? That is terrible. <laughs> this is a very short story.
0: <laughs> Remain indoors. Remain indoors. Nobody ever gets to come home. Nobody leaves. Leave. Nobody comes home unscathed. I'm sorry. That's okay. what I'm All right. I've just revealed my plan. I'm sorry.